Who are the two witnesses? What's their mission and career? And how does their mission come to an end? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We are on Revelation chapter 11 and, of course, wrapping up Revelation chapter 10. And, of course, Revelation chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 11 is about the the famed two witnesses. And we'll look at their their very strange and interesting career and how their that career, again, comes to an end in a very dramatic, dramatic fashion that is just going to, to completely stun the entire world. But before we get to that, we have to, we actually have to wrap up chapter 10. In the last episode, we started looking at Revelation chapter 10, but we only got through the first half because that that first half of that chapter brings about the conclusion of the trial of the ages, a trial that began in Daniel chapter 12, a thousand years, several thousand, a couple thousand years ago, actually more than that, almost uh, 2,500 years ago if not earlier, and finally concludes here. And I'm not going to go into detail on that. I, I went into extreme detail on it in the last episode. So please go back and uh, take a look at a listen and watch of that episode. But I was only able to get to the first half. And so we're going to wrap up chapter 10 and then hopefully get through all of Revelation chapter 12. I'm excuse me, good grief. Chapter 11. This, this will probably be the most scripture we've covered in a single setting of, of Revelation. So we will see how that goes. So let's just get started by, um, again, wrapping up the last uh, three, uh, four verses of Revelation chapter 10, which includes which includes John and the little book. So let's just start reading at verse eight to the end. Uh, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the land and the sea. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Okay, so what is this strange incident? And we have to keep in mind, we can't divorce it from what happened before. And as we talked about last episode, chapter 10 begins with a mighty angel, very descriptive, with a face like a sun and... um, a rainbow above his head, standing on the land and the sea, clothed in a cloud. What we know this angel is actually Jesus. Yes, Jesus has been called an angel. He's called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. That's called a theophany um, in Christology. I'm not going to get into why this is true. I did it last episode. If you don't understand that, please go back and and listen to to that episode. And this angel, Jesus, says that there will be delayed no he swears by god that there will be delay no longer which is the end of the trial the trial is over the verdict is in and there will be no more delay in rendering that judgment against the nations the trial is the judgment of the nations who have been subjugated to the uh, fallen angels who were put over it again that's all last episode so let's just move on so this same angel is standing there and we see as we break these verses down he heard a voice uh, from heaven which is the voice of god spoke to me again and said, go take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel. So Jesus has in his hand a little book or rather a scroll. And John takes it and eats it. 
All right, what's this all about? Eating a book. That seems strange because it is strange. A book isn't generally on the human diet. Um, I haven't eaten paper since maybe I was a baby. You know, when you put everything in your mouth when you're a baby and a toddler. And from what I recall vaguely, uh, paper doesn't taste very good. So what's happening here? It's not a, it's not a food stuff. It's, it's a strange thing. But when we ever, whenever we come into a strange part of the Bible that we need interpretation, then the best place to do it is to let the Bible interpret itself. That's the best way to interpret the Bible is allow the Bible to interpret itself. Because prophecy is not just prediction. Prophecy is also pattern. So we look at the patterns. Where Has this happened again? Has, before, excuse me. Has this happened in the past? And the answer is yes, it has. There's a couple of places that we see in the Bible where Believe it or not, the, a, a, a book or the word of God is eaten. The first is in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. We start at chapter two and it bleeds over into chapter three because I, I think the the people who uh, did the chapter breaks in this part of Ezekiel didn't do a very good job. The, I think Ezekiel two and three should be part of the same chapter. But anyway, we'll start with the last uh, verse of Ezekiel chapter two, which is verse nine. And it reads, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it out before me, and there was written on the inside and on the outside, lament, uh, sorry, written on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Huh, we have a book here written on the outside and inside. Where have we seen that before? Well, we saw that in Revelation chapter 5, the, the title deed to the earth. Uh, keep going. Uh, next chapter, chapter three. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Well, that's interesting. Obviously a very, very similar uh, situation to what John has. And it's what John has experienced. And there's also another area we can go to um, in the book of Jeremiah, another prophet, specifically Jeremiah chapter, where are we? Chapter 15, looking at, uh, starting at verse 16, it says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? So here you have another um, prophet who, is, who eats the word of God, who eats the words, and it was it was rejoicing, called rejoicing in his heart, but it also filled him with indignation. So it's similar wordplay there. Um, in Ezekiel, he, the, the, the book is as sweet as honey. It doesn't say directly that it makes his stomach bitter. But if you keep reading Ezekiel chapter three, the, those, what the words of that book that Ezekiel has to say are pretty bitter because they are prophesying the doom of Israel and God's judgment on them. And of course, we have the same thing with uh, Jeremiah here that the words filled him with indignation or again, bitterness. So that's what's going on here. So what it, so it takes us back to Revelation. And we look at John, the same thing. He has a book. He eats it. It's sweet in his mouth, just like uh, Ezekiel. And But there's bitterness, indignation in his belly. So what, what do these things have in common? Well, these are both books where there is some type of judgment involved. Lamentations and woe in Ezekiel's book. The word of indignation in the words that Jeremiah ate. So this is the same thing. This is so when John eats this book, it's sweet in his mouth. Why? Because 
it's meeting out God to justice. And God to justice is, well, it's just. God is always and completely right and just. God's plan is sweet. This judgment is deserved. It is the judgment that people have been requesting and asking for. However, there's bitterness in it. Why? Because there's going to be suffering involved. Ezekiel and Jeremiah uh, prophesied judgment against Israel. So that was bitter. And what's going to happen after the after what after uh, uh, this area in the Bible is um, chronologically, you're going to get the the bowls of God's wrath, which are going to be the most devastating events in the history of the world. So, of course, this all begs the question, what exactly is this book? What is this little scroll that he eats? Well, I think the probably the low hanging fruit in this situation, probably the easiest uh, interpretation would be that this book being held by Jesus would be the same scroll we saw in Revelation chapter five, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals that he opens and breaks the seals. And that leads us to Revelation chapter six and the opening of the seals and the four horsemen in which we went uh, we went into ad nauseum. And that's the common interpretation. That's what most commentators seem to think it is. And it very well could be. Um, that's what I've believed for a long time. However, as you know, here in Faith by Reason, we always like to look at the alternatives and the reasons that this might not meet with tradition. And there are a few. One of the reasons it, it might not be the same scroll, the same title deed to the earth that Jesus possessed, took possession of in Revelation chapter five, is that it's described differently. It's described here as a little book or a little scroll. Uh, it's not described that way in Revelation chapter 5. It, now, granted, Revelation chapter 5 doesn't give any um, indication of what the size of the scroll is, but you know, it wasn't called a little scroll there. And also, why did John call it this? Why, why didn't, I mean, this is the, the scroll in Revelation chapter 5 was extremely familiar to John. He just saw it and he wept over it. This scroll was one of the most important documents John had ever seen. And when no one was found worthy to open it, John wept bitterly. So this is not just some random scroll. Why didn't John say, hey, the, you know, this mighty angel had in his hand the scroll that was sealed with seven seals that I saw before? He didn't. And that would be easy for him to say, but he didn't. So that's another reason. And also, it's the title deed to the earth. Why is John eating it? That doesn't make a whole ton of sense. But again, it still could be. But here's my interpretation. My thought is that this book is, is not necessarily that same title deed to the earth. I think it's one of the books of judgment that we saw open in the last episode in, uh, in excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, where after... Satan's plan was revealed, judgment was set up, the court was set up, and the books were open. These were books of judgment. And remember, this section is just a continuation of that court scene, of the ending of the court scene. So so since Jesus is the plaintiff in the court scene, and this, this little book to me, I would say, I would contend that this little book is the judgment. It is the verdict, the guilty verdict and the judgment. And it's one of the books that were that was that was open. That's what happens in Jewish courts. You have the books and, and the verdict and the punishment. The judgment is written in the book. And I think that this is the book that John eats. And it is, of course, it's sweet in his mouth because it means that finally, at, at long last, the fallen beings who've ruled the world for centuries, for millennia, will finally be judged. And that's wonderful because it means Jesus will Jesus will finally take possession of the earth, which is what people have been waiting for for forever. However, it's going to be bitter and fill with and fill him with indignation. Why? Because the judgments of the bowls that are coming up are going to be just horrible, the worst devastation the world has ever seen. So that's it with the book. And the last part of this, 
um, verse 11. And he said to me, you will, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. What does that mean? Well, stick a pin in that. We're going to get back to that as we get into chapter 11. So let's read chapter 11 and I should be, hopefully I can get through all of it, hopefully, because I, I really want to get into chapter 12 next time. So I'm going to run through this. So chapter 11, starting in verse one, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds out of, from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war with them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented them who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken the great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunders, an earthquake, and great hail. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff happening. So let's start breaking it down, and hopefully I can get through this. Okay. Then I, John, was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angels... Jesus again stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar. So John was told to, to measure the temple of God and those who worship there, but not to measure the outer court. So, because those, those are given to the Gentiles and they will tread it under what, for 42 months, which is again, which is three and a half years. So what's, what, what is this all about? Um, if you look at the layout of the, of the temple, there is the, the temple itself, but then there's also an outer court. The outer court is where the common people would come and bring their sacrifices. But the inside of the temple was was really only for the priesthood. And just for for the worship, the priest would take the offerings in and they would worship and they go into the, then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the, the very back of the temple where, where God was, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So as far as a time de designation is concerned, 
the the Gentiles will be given this outer court and the city um, for of, of Jerusalem for forty two months, at three and a half years. And when we hear three and a half years in the in the context of eschatology, it's going to refer to a portion of the of the tribulation of that seven last years of human history, and it's commonly divided into two three and a half year segments. So is this talking about the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years, which is which is commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation? I would contend that this is the first three and a half years. Others disagree, and that's perfectly fine. They could very well be right. But I think there are some chronological issues that would lead us to believe this is the first three and a half years. What's happening in that first three and a half years of the tribulation? Well, remember what actually designates the seven year period. It's not the rapture. It's not anything necessarily that God does directly. The seven years are, are the co- is the covenant that the Antichrist uh, confirms with the nation of Israel. We see that in, in Daniel chapter nine, the prince of the, of the people who shall come will confirm a covenant for seven years. So this covenant, which some people call it peace treaty, and it may well be, it can make sense when we look at our, uh, again, contemporary culture, you know, war and, and peace in the Middle East has been, a, has been you know, the, the main topic of worldwide conversation for over 80 years now. So if someone comes along and makes peace in that area, that's going to be a big deal. And as, as part of that peace or part of, of some type of treaty or covenant with Israel, you would think that, well, rebuilding the temple has to be a part of it because we know a temple has to exist because the Antichrist is going to defile the temple so that he can't defile a temple that doesn't exist. And of course, we'll talk about the Antichrist when we get to chapter 13. So there, so I would contend that part of the Antichrist covenant will be getting the temple rebuilt because remember, the Jews are going to accept him as their Messiah. And of course, a Messiah would get a, a temple rebuilt. But what about the rest? What about the outer court? Why are the Gentiles trotting it down? Uh, doesn't say directly, but we do know that this is going to be a very secular uh, period of time. In fact, we'll see in a, in a few verses that Jerusalem is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Those are not flattering terms. Jerusalem at this point is not a holy city. It is a very secular, if not demonic city. And all of, all of it is being trodden down by the Gentiles, except for the temple of God and the altar. That's the only part that's going to still be holy ground. The rest of Jerusalem, the rest of the temple ground, the temple mount, is going to be under the control of the Gentiles who will trot it down. Now, if you look at the where the temple mount is currently, the, the Dome of the Rock, I think the second or third holiest place in Islam, is, is sitting there. And many believe that it's currently sitting on the area where the Jewish temple once was. So how can you have a Jewish temple built without tearing down the Dome of the Rock? And if you tear down the Dome, Dome of the Rock, it's going to start a world war. All of Islam is going to start fighting, which means they're going to bring their allies in, which means Israel will bring their allies in. And that's, that's a world war. I'm not saying that couldn't happen. It might. But there's another possibility. There are some archaeologists who believe that the Dome of the Rock is not in exactly at the point of the of the temple. It's it's a little um, off of the temple site, meaning it will be in the outer court. It will be in the area where the Gentiles were trodden down, in which case you could technically build the temple of God, the Jewish temple, on its original ground and have the Islamic temple and the Jewish temple side by side. Again, that would take a whole lot of political maneuvering, which I suppose the Antichrist could do, but it would also show how you could have the outer court trodden down by the Gentiles. Now, this trodden down, it means it's going to be disrespected. It doesn't mean that Gentiles will just hold control of it. It, They're going to trot it down. They're going to disrespect it. They're going to treat it without regard. 
you could almost have something like, again, this is my speculation, like almost like a, a, a religious amusement park here where you've got, because you got, you know, a, a Jewish presence, an Islamic presence, and maybe even a Christian presence, quote unquote Christian. You may have a, a cathedral here because the Catholic Church has wanted to control Jerusalem for centuries. That's what the Crusades were all about. And in this world, you have to remember that this is the time around uh, in which the uh, false apocalypse is happening satan's false apocalypse where the angels come down pretend to be aliens or ascended masters or whatever please go back and look at the study on revelation chapter six and the six seals that i did particularly seal number six where they're going to come down and say hey all the religions of the world are wrong we are the we angels we fallen we um we alien angels ascended masters are your true gods and all your religions were just you know your misinterpretations and if that's the case the world is not going to really regard judaism or islam or christianity or or you know the uh, the catholic equivalent of christianity is meaning much and it could be like again the temple mountain just like some relic it's like a museum and the gentiles would trot it down and not treat it very well but the, the temple will still be god's holy ground because God owns that that area. And it's going to be, and I think that happens in the first three and a half years, because I think the second three and a half years is we'll find out when we study the Antichrist is going to be marked by him claiming himself to be God. All right, move on. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days, three and a half years. God makes it very clear that this is a three and a half year period. And I believe it'll be this during the same first three and a half years. Okay, they are called witnesses and they prophesy. Now, many Christian commentators consider these two men, and they are two men, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about their identity or what their identity might be in a few minutes. But when they're called witnesses, most commentators, especially modern commentators in the West, call them evangelists. Why? Well, because we, we kind of superimpose our English terms, our English words, onto our, our English vernacular, onto what the Bible says. And in, in our vernacular, a witness, if you witness to someone, you're evangelizing them, you're bringing them to Christ. So we take that and we say, well, these are two witnesses. That means that, that they're witnessing to other people. They're evangelists, they're saving souls. It may be, but again, we have to look at how the original language is written and what the original intent is. These are witnesses. That doesn't necessarily mean they're evangelists. There's another type of witness, and that's a witness in a court case. Remember, that's what we just were talking about in the last episode, in the last chapter. This is a court. This is there. This is an area where God is rendering judgment. So witnesses in that case are people who are testifying against the defendant. So they may not be evangelists. In fact, I think there's reason to believe they are not evangelists, that they're not trying to save souls. They are witnesses for God. They are God's witnesses and they will prophesy. Prophesy means they're going to preach. Prophesy does not necessarily mean they're going to be saying, you know, Jesus, come to Jesus and be saved. Prophesy means they are just going to proclaim. That's really what prophesy means in, in, the, in the most uh, objective sense. They're going to make proclamations for three and a half years. We'll see later specifically that, that they are testifying. What would they be testifying to? What are they going to be prophesying? What are they going to be preaching? I think they're going to be preaching the doom of the nations. I think they're going to be saying that judgment is coming for three and a half years. They're going to be judgments coming. That's, that's, that's just like God to do that. He warns before he delivers his judgment. He always gives people as many chances as possible 
to uh, to repent. I think their their prophecy, their their um, their career is going to be a lot like what Jonah was uh, told to do. You know, we know the story of Jonah. He was told to go to Nineveh, and he didn't want to until you know God got a great fish to swallow him, and you know. Uh, basically um, explained his mission a little more clearly to Jonah. Then Jonah goes to Nineveh. And when Jonah went to Nineveh, which was an evil city, he didn't go there saying, oh, please come to God. Please, um, yeah, you know, repent of your sin. Nope. His message, if you read the book of Jonah, it says 40 days comes destruction. He just walked around the city saying, hey, guys, in 40 days, you're done. You're toast. He didn't say repent. He didn't say turn to God. He just said, you guys are done. Now, granted, to their credit, the people of Nineveh all repented and God relented and didn't judge them for a while, which actually made Jonah kind of upset, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe we'll do a study of Jonah down way down the road sometime. But I think that these two witnesses are going to have the same message saying that you've been found guilty. You are going to be judged. That will be their message for three and a half years. The world is guilty. This apocalypse, this fake apocalypse is not real. God is God. Satan's kingdom is going to come down. You're going to get yours. Your destruction is coming. Okay, so now, now that's what I believe the message is going to be. That's what I think. I think it's pretty clear that they're they're not trying to bring people to Jesus. They are telling people that they're going that that this world is doomed. Now, people might come to Jesus during this. They might just like with Jonah, they might see or hear their message and say we should repent. But if they do repent, I think it's going to be of, of their own volition, and you know, good for them if they do. I'm, I'm sure many people will be saved during this time. All right, so that's what their mission is. They're clothes in sackcloth, by the way, and sackcloth is a it, it's it's a garment. Those are garments of mourning. So again, they're not. Sorry, my phone was going off. Uh, these are not garments of hope. These are garments of mourning. They are just saying the world is doomed. That that's what this is all about. All right, so that's what their mission is. Now, who are these guys? That's the that's the question. Who are these two witnesses? There's a good amount of debate as to the identity of these two witnesses. It's not as contentious or anywhere near as contentious as things like uh, the rapture or the millennium or preterism versus futurism or any of that stuff. But there's some debate. And I will say that for the most part, there's agreement, general agreement on one of the witnesses. And one of them is the prophet Elijah. Most commentators believe that one of these guys is, is Elijah. Why? Because... Elijah is specifically promised by God to come back to the earth to prophesy before the final judgment. So Jewish people have been actively waiting for Elijah to come right before the Messiah's second coming. In fact, they asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah. They thought he might be. And Jesus himself actually said that John could have been considered Elijah if the Jews had believed. Because if the Jews had believed in Jesus, then Jesus would, could have brought the kingdom in during you know, uh, after his death, but of course they didn't. But if, but if he did, then technically John could have been Elijah. So it's either Elijah or someone acting in the mantle of Elijah as John the Baptist did. Furthermore, Elijah was able to, one of the things Elijah was known for in the book of Kings was withholding rain from the earth during the time of his prophecy. And that's what one of the, that's what the witnesses will be able to do. So general agreement on Elijah. The other witness is up for a bit of debate. There are some who say it's Moses, others say it's Enoch. The reasons for Moses are what the Moses is known for bringing about the plagues on the earth during the time of the Exodus, of course, through God, specifically turning waters to blood, which we see in this passage that the witnesses will be able to do. Also, there's reason to believe that Moses has a mission 
after his death because we see in the book of Jude that the archangel Michael and Satan were fighting over uh, Moses' body back when Moses died. So obviously Satan knows that that or believes that Moses has some type of significance later on. And then finally, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, the disciples saw Jesus standing there with who? Elijah and Moses. So maybe this was them giving, being given a briefing about their mission upcoming during the day of the Lord. So there's good reasons for Moses. There's also good reasons for Enoch. Uh, Enoch had something in common with Elijah in that neither Elijah nor Enoch died. They were both raptured. Enoch was raptured in uh, Genesis chapter 5. And Elijah was was um, also taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. Neither both of them went to heaven without ever dying. So they are so they have that in common. And also another thing with Enoch that is even more convincing is that in the book of Enoch, the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, uh, Enoch's job was to render judgment to the fallen angels, to the watchers who sinned. And that's what I believe the two witnesses will be preaching during their time on Earth. So those are who. Those are the popular ones. There's also another possibility. When we read uh, in, in verse four, what, what God, what the Bible says about these two witnesses, it says in verse four, these are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Well, we know what the lampstands are. We just go back a, a few chapters, actually, to the beginning of the book. The lampstands are the church. Jesus interprets the lampstands as the church. And what are the olive trees? Olive trees are are, are an a idiom for Israel. So these these two guys represent an olive tree and a lampstand. They represent Israel and the church. So one of them being Elijah would definitely represent Israel. He was a, a prophet to Israel, but one might represent the church. And that's where there's a possibility that this other witness might be who? The apostle John, the one who's writing the book right now. Why? Because we just saw at the end of chapter 10, is told, God tells John, you must prophesy again to many nations and tongues and peoples. So there's some who believe that this second one is, the second witness is John the Apostle come back to life to prophesy again as he was told he would have to do and he would represent the church since he was a disciple of Jesus. Also fascinating. So what do I think? Um, I really don't know. I have my opinions. I suppose I would, I tend to, I tend to, vacillate between Elijah and Enoch and Elijah and Moses. As of this very moment, I'm tending more towards Elijah and uh, Enoch because of what I've learned about Enoch in the last couple of years, reading that book, the book of Enoch and, and how he, how it parallels what, what he did there, how it parallels with, with, with what's going on in Revelation. But I could be wrong and I'm not going to, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to debate to the death anyone who says it's not Elijah and Enoch or Elijah and Moses or Elijah and John because it's honestly to me is who their identity is not nearly as important as their mission so again I'm thinking it's Elijah and Enoch but if I'm wrong eh, I could be wrong I mean it could also be two guys we've never seen before it could just be two people that God brings up to be his witnesses who we've never heard of and so, again, I don't think this is worth getting into a vigorous argument over. You can give your opinions, obviously, and I just gave mine. But this isn't something worth fighting over because their identity is far less important than their mission and what they do. So let's talk a little bit more about what they do. So 
if anyone if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. So people are going to want to harm them. Why? Because I believe they are going to be shouting judgment on the nations. They are going to be proclaiming that this that this world that's ruled by Satan now is false. That these ascended masters are not real. That the the Antichrist is not true who he says he is. They're going to be prophesying against the world as it is, and the world is going to hate them. Satan is going to hate them. The Antichrist is going to hate them. We'll see what he does um, in, in a few minutes. But but here's the thing. They're protected by God. God is having them testify on his behalf, so no one's going to harm them until their testimony is done. And if anyone tries to harm them, they're going to get burned up with fire. Probably not a pleasant way to go. And furthermore, the other thing that's going to ingratiate them to people on the earth, uh, or, or, is, or I'm sorry, maybe the opposite, is actually going to indemnify them to the people of earth, is that they will shut the heavens so no rain falls. It's not going to rain when they're prophesying for three and a half years. Now, is that local or worldwide? Are they, If it's local, because you know, they're, they're, again, they're going to be in Jerusalem, so does that mean that there's no rain falling in that general area, the Middle East? Well, that would be bad, but even worse would be if there's no rain on the earth at all. I would contend that it's going to be worldwide. Why? Because the whole world is going to hate these guys. So if they just keep rain from falling in a local area, local to Israel, okay, that'll be annoying. But, you know, if you're in the United, United States, it's not going to affect you. If you're in Europe, it's not going to affect you. If you're in Australia, you're not going to care. But if they can keep rain from falling on the entire earth for three and a half years, oh, that's going to make people very unhappy because you can't grow crops. You're, you know, you're going to, there's going to be drought. There's going to be water rationing. You're not going to have enough water to drink. And with the water you drink, it might have been turned to blood in the, in the uh, seven trumpets. So they're not going to be very well liked. And they're going to turn, you know, they're going to turn more waters to blood. And they're going to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So these guys, and we don't know specifically what these plagues are going to be, but we can probably look at the Bible and what and, and what the Bible has has shown in the past for plagues to be. Again, water turning to blood, hail and locusts and frogs and lice and sores and all kinds of things. You just look at what the Bible is generally um, uh, designated as plagues. Not going to be pleasant. So the world is going to hate these people, but there's nothing they can do because they will be protected by God for three and a half years. But their time is limited. And it says in verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. This is the Antichrist. So their testimony will end. God will remove his hedge of protection. And then and only then will the Antichrist be able to kill them. Not not before. So there's not going to be a great um, feat on his part. He didn't defeat God. God just, you know, lifted his hedge of protection. And then they're going, the world is going to so hate these two guys that they won't even let them be buried. They will. Their bodies will lie in the street for three days. And by the way, that's, as I said before, the great city is called, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, two of the most hated places in the Bible. Sodom was, was an abomination that God destroyed. Egypt was another abomination to God that he put the, the plagues on. So calling the spirit, a city spiritually Sodom and Edom, Egypt, meaning that this is the most depraved city on earth. And it's also where our Lord was crucified. This is Jerusalem. At this time in history, Jerusalem will be the most depraved, the most satanic, the most demonic, the most evil, licentious city on earth. 
Can you imagine that? Of course, Satan will take great delight once he rules the world. He will take great delight in making Jerusalem the city of God, the city where Jesus lived, where, not lived, where Jesus uh, was crucified and where he visited the holy city. Satan will take great delight in making Jerusalem the center of depravity on earth. It'll make, you know, Las Vegas and whatever sinful city you want to think about look like, you know, a, a, a Boy Scout picnic compared to um, to the city and Satan will take great delight in that. And they will let their, their bodies, their dead bodies are going to just be rotting for three and a half days. Why three and a half days? Don't know exactly. Maybe because three and a half days, well, Jesus was buried for three days and three days and three nights. So maybe three and a half days is close to that. Maybe it mirrors the three and a half years. I don't know, but you know, there's a specific reason for it. And uh, people are, who who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. These are people whose home is the earth. We've talked about this before. There are two classes of people in Revelation: the those who dwell on earth and those who dwell in heaven. Those whose home is the earth, meaning the fallen people, the evil people, the per people who say that they're not interested in God or heaven, that their eternal destiny is the earth. This is our their home versus the people who believe in God, whose eternal home is heaven. So those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, will rejoice and make merry and give gifts to one another. It's going to be like Christmas. Because, why? Because these two prophets who withheld rain for three and a half years, who burned people to death, who struck the earth with all kinds of plagues, in addition to all the other stuff that's been going on with the seals and the trumpets, these guys who've just been talking about sealing the doom and annoying people are finally gone. Just to give you a small hint of what these people are like, I don't know if you've ever had the, uh, the situation where you've gone to some public square or, you know, maybe museum, amusement park, and you have these street preachers just on a microphone, just yelling and screaming at you about, you know, come to Jesus. You're a sinner. You're going to hell if you don't come to Jesus. And here's the thing. I understand that they're in their hearts are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to preach on behalf of the kingdom of God. But this is not how you do it. Being out in the middle of the street with a me megaphone, with signs saying, you know, repent or you're going to hell, that's not the way to witness. You're not winning anybody over. All you're doing is annoying people. I've gone, it wasn't too long ago, maybe three or four months that my wife and I and my kids, we were going to an area in our city um, where there was a museum and we were taking our kids there to you know, have them have a good time. And right outside the gate where we were buying tickets was this guy, again, in a micro, with a microphone, just nonstop preaching about, you know, hellfire and brimstone and you're sinners and you're got to get rid of the gays and the transgenders and uh, abortion and blah, blah, blah. And again, I understand that what he's saying is technically true, but you're not winning people to Christ by annoying them and calling them names and interfering with them when they're, when they're just out with their families having a nice time. Jesus didn't do that. That's not how Jesus witnessed. That's not how disciples witness. That's not how Paul did it. So if you don't do that, if that's hopefully that's not in your purview, but if it is, don't do it. It doesn't do any good for anyone. You are you all you're doing is making Christians look like crazy fanatics that they say we are instead of being ambassadors for Jesus. You're not being an ambassador. You're being an annoyance. But again, that's what these guys are going to do. But they're doing it. They're intended to be an annoyance. They're not trying to win people to Christ. They are there to declare judgment on behalf of God. So that is their job. They're not because they're not trying to win Christ. I have no problem with them proclaiming what they're going to proclaim and testifying on behalf of God, saying that for millennia, for hundreds, for thousands of years, you fallen angels have 
corrupted man. You cause war and torment and just the most horrible things we could possibly imagine, torture and implement and starvation and disease. All these things that these fallen angels have been doing, it's over. God wins. You lose. You're all going to hell for this. If you take the mark of the beast, you're done. I have no problem with him doing that because that's what God wants him to do. And it's the truth and it needs to be preached. However, once that is done, the Antichrist is going to kill them there and he will be a hero for it. That's why they'll, they'll love him so much for getting rid of these guys and the world will rejoice and give gifts like it's Christmas. However, God's not done with them. After, after those three and a half days of them lying in the street, their bodies rotting and they won't let them be buried. And I'm sure it'll look just disgusting watching their body rot. Eventually, the spirit, the breath of life will enter them and they will stand on their feet and they will hear a, it will be a loud voice from heaven from God saying, come up here and they will be raptured. They will ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies will see them. Now, many people, including myself, see this as the point of the mid-tribulation rapture. That's why I believe this is happening in the first three and a half years, because that whole come up here echoes what happens in Revelation chapter four. That's the first words are after these things, I heard a, we heard a voice saying, come up here. It's the same thing. They are being raptured. And I think this is the point where the 144,000 are raptured and the believers who are on the earth will also be raptured at that time. And I think this is all part of the same situation. We'll, we'll see more of that when we get to chapter 14, um, a few uh, a, a few chapters from now, several episodes from now. So they are raptured. And there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city, Jerusalem, fell. And 7,000 people were killed. So obviously it's a pretty specific number. I don't know the significance of 7,000 people being killed. I, I don't know it. If I if I figure it out, I'll come back and revisit this um, this episode. But 7,000 people are killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. It doesn't mean they repented. Gave glory means that they acknowledged that this was from God. They acknowledged that God raised these two witnesses and, and whoever else is raptured, th that he did it himself. They still don't believe in God. They still don't give him um, salvation glory. They still don't acknowledge that he is you know, the, the true God. They don't, they, don't, they don't repent. They just give, they say, well, this is what God did, but God is still their enemy. Chapter four, uh, verse four, the second 14, excuse me. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Remember the woes were the last three trumpets. The trumpet number five, the first woe was the demonic locust. The second woe was the demonic horseman, who we talked about a couple episodes ago. And finally, here comes the third woe. And this is actually, it's a woe to the earth, but it's great news for the rest of the world, for the believers and for creation. Because in verse 15, it says the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And what happened? There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Remember, what was the point of the seven trumpets? They were not direct judgments from God. That's coming up with the bowls of wrath. No, the seven trumpets were the strongholds, Satan's strongholds being broken down so that Jesus could proclaim, could, could reclaim the earth. And when that seventh trumpet is blown, what happens? That is the culmination of these trumpets. And again, this is why I believe this is happening at the midpoint of the tribulation. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. Jesus can now take possession of the world and he will reign forever and ever. This is glorious news. This is spectacular news. This is the culmination of everything that's happened. It's the culmination of the trial of the ages. It's the culmination of the, of the scroll being opened and the seven seals um, of, of the victory that Jesus had on the cross. All of this comes together now, finally. 
the, the seventh trumpet is blown and the, the kingdoms of the world are Jesus' kingdoms now. He is ready. He can claim them. They are his. They are no longer Satan's. He's been kicked off the throne. It is time for Jesus to take control of the earth. So God can now finally judge the world. He can judge the evil in the world and Jesus can take what belongs to him. And that is why you see, starting in verse 17, this explosion of, of, of praise in the heavens. And I'm not going to read it again. You can read verses uh, verses 17 and 18, where it says, you know, he basically the the, the crux of it is we're, they're thanking God because he because of his power and, and the nations were overthrown and his wrath has come and the time of the dead and the judgment's coming. Um, and you're going to he's going to reward the servants and the prophets, the people who've been killed and who've been on God's side for all this time. They're going to be rewarded, and he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. It is time. For the judgment. It is time for God to justly do what he's supposed to do, what he what he promised to do. And the last verse, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. What does that mean? That means that before this, the temple of God was closed. And his ark and his covenant was seen in the temple. What does this mean? We have to keep in mind that the temple on earth is not the final, is not the true temple of God. The temple on earth is is merely a representation. The Jewish temple is a representation of what's in heaven. Man had to come to God in the Old Testament through the temple. That was, that was That's the only way they could access the presence of God. Now, in the New Testament period, in the salvation period, the temple is in our hearts. And we can obviously commune with God in our own hearts. God lives within us. Our, his Holy Spirit lives within us. However, now the true temple, the real temple of God is finally open. Open to who? open to the believers is finally open and the true ark of the covenant and again the ark of the covenant of, of the covenant the gold uh the golden ark that was you know created uh during the time of moses which which was won back by david which um was you know which was taken away during the time of the babylonian captivity that was a replica too the true ark of god which is the throne of god is in heaven in his temple and it's finally open god does not God is, there's no more intermediary, no, no more intermediary area between God and man. We don't need a replica temple. We don't need a replica ark. We are now um, allowed into the true temple of God, into the true ark, and can see the true ark of God. And of course, there are lightnings, noises, thunders, and earthquake and great hail. Um, so obviously, these are um, just, just cosmic um, experiences, cosmic indications of just the glory of God. And so is this earthquake happening on, on earth? Man, probably it's an earthquake. So of course it's happening on earth and great hail. So of course people aren't going to like that very much either, but that is just signs that this earthquake, maybe who knows who this earthquake might level the temple. Um, maybe this is around the time that the antichrist does his, his deal where he goes, goes into the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. This earthquake might um, void that temple. And, and again, that's another reason why I think this is happening at the midpoint, because the midpoint is when the Antichrist goes into the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. And that's the point where God says, okay, I'm done with this temple here. You and your Antichrist, you guys can have that temple. The true temple for my true believers is in heaven. And all my believers are there now. The pre-tribulation rapture has already happened. So the church is the, um, the church who was believing and faithful is in heaven. And now the mid-tribulation rapture has happened where the the people who are saved before, I mean, who, who have been saved after the tribulation, before um, the Antichrist declared himself to be God, they're in heaven now. So honestly, 
I don't think there's any Christians left on earth. Maybe some people will be saved after this, but I think that earth is in a situation where the only people left are the people who've taken the mark of the beast. That, And I believe that because when we get into the bold judgments, we're going to find that those bold judgments, judgments affect everyone who take, who's taking the mark of the beast and affects the whole earth. So the only way it could affect the only way it can affect the whole earth is if every human being was infected, was affected. And if you were not part of the mark of the beast, then it wouldn't be fair for you to be affected by it. So I really think there are no Christians left. That's why I, I think the only people left on earth during this time are people who've taken the mark of the beast and Jews who have not yet been saved because they're going to be the focus of it. I think Christians are gone. I don't believe there are any more believing Christians on earth. They will not be on earth for this last three and a half years. That is my true belief. And I think the Jews will be protected. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about that in the next episode, how they're protected. But I think they will be protected. And yeah, there are no more Christians left. It's done. Christianity is done. Honestly, even if you're a post-tribulation believer, when the rapture happens and you see the Antichrist, I truly don't believe any true Christian is going to say, nope, I'm going to hold out. No, you're going to believe, well, you know, you have to acknowledge that you were wrong about the rapture and you're going to have faith and you will be raptured in the mid-tribulation rapture. The post-tribulation rapture is only for Jewish people. It's only for the unbelieving Jews. Christians are off the earth and that's why it makes sense. That's why I suggest for God to pour out his wrath on the whole earth because his people, his Christians are no longer there. All right. Uh, went way over again. We're almost at 50 minutes. So uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason uh, by putting your email into the right navigation area and you'll get these episodes as soon as they are available. Subscribe here on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button. Hit the share button so you can hit, hit all the buttons you can so that this can be shared with as many people as possible. And we will talk again next week when we dive into Revelation chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because Revelation chapter 12 is where we get insight into how God experiences time. God is eternal. And this gives us a glimpse of how eternity works. And it shows us how God's great love, in addition to us, God's great love is his love of stories. And that may be a huge reason why God created us in the first place, so that he could have our stories. Okay, we'll talk about it next time. And I will see you then.